0: All right, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Um, Chapter 7, we'll be picking up at verse 14. If you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to uh, get you a Bible. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you guys. Go ahead and keep it. It's yours. We love you. Enjoy it. Um, Read it. (laughs) Read it or give it away. If you don't want to read it, give it away to someone that needs it. Um, All right. Uh, I just I, a couple things before we even jump in here this morning. So we've been in a series going through the Gospel of John. Uh, we just been tackling verse by verse, chapter by chapter, making our way through this entire book. That means that's there's going to be occasions and passages that we read that just are, are, are fairly easy. They're fairly straightforward. They resonate with life. They're beautiful. It's like how could you how could you not just read that and be motivated or moved? By the image that's uh, portrayed there, and then there's other passages uh, that can be lengthy and. Feel a little bit drawn out. That are a little bit. They require a little bit more, you know, digging and research and thought and careful consideration. Um, This this passage today happens to be the latter of that. That it it will. First of all, I just want to tell you it's going to be a very lengthy segment, so don't don't fall asleep yet. Um, hopefully it will be fun and engaging, and hopefully it will uh, speak to you by way of the Holy Spirit, showing you things about who God is. But what I want to do real quick today is just I want to let you know first and foremost where this will go. Um, I- Quick little outline for all of this. Number one, um, we're going to look at mainly the main verse that will kind of tie everything together that we'll be looking at. So I want to just highlight that real quickly. It's in uh, John chapter 7, verse 24. So if you want, why don't you just look at that real quickly, John chapter seven twenty four. At least make mental note of it. So open that up in your Bible or uh, read that on your app, whatever. Um, and I'll read it to you that Jesus makes this statement. He says, make sure that you judge, not according to appearances, but judge righteous." judgment. Um, We hear, in fact, uh, one of the most commonly misquoted passages of the entire Bible, maybe you already know this, is, is, you know, the phrase, do not judge, lest you be judged. You guys guys ever heard that? Anybody not heard of that? Okay. Um, The fact is is that it's one of the most commonly misquoted passages. Uh, So anytime someone has an opinion about something, it's often, especially a religious opinion, someone somewhere in the crowd just throws out their voice and like, Jesus says don't judge, and all of a sudden we're supposed to like fall in line like, okay, well, Jesus says don't judge, so therefore we should never judge. That, that's actually inaccurate. That's not, that's not what Jesus said. But the fact of the matter is, is that what Jesus does invite us to do is when we do judge, to judge according, not according to appearances. In other words, you, you know, don't use the spiritual gift that I'm good at, which is judging a book by its cover. And I'm not, I don't say that in any form of prior arrogance. It's like, to my shame. Some of you are finally getting that. You're like, oh, that's funny. Yes, that was what the intent was. Um, that we oftentimes judge someone by their appearance. Jesus says, do not do that. But he goes on to say, judge according to righteous judgment. Or judgment that is right, that is good, that is informed. That, that has uh, information that's baked in. But in this context, what Jesus is really talking about is in the context of who he is. If you want to think of it this way, what Jesus is suggesting is make sure that you have a proper vision of who I am. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Make sure that you see Jesus rightly for who he is. Um, and this is in contrast to what? False opinions about Jesus. Do we have or entertain false opinions about Jesus? Are there any false opinions about Jesus floating around in culture at large today? All over the place. All right, we'll we'll tackle some of those in just a moment. But what Jesus seems to be saying here is make sure that you judge according to righteous judgment, not according to um, appearances. And then secondly, within this context, we'll take a look at some of the variety of opinions that the people in the, in the story, that are characters in the story, have about Jesus. So that's, that's you know, number one thing that we'll look at. The second thing is, um, just I'm just giving you the quick little uh, menu of what we'll be doing here today. Um, secondly, we'll read through all three paragraphs. There's like three major paragraphs or three movements that we'll read through, and that we'll jump into that second. And lastly, um, I'll just summarize some real practical ways, hopefully for you and I to really think about, carefully, how should we, and how can we really judge rightly? If Jesus is telling us to do that, how can we do that rightly? Or another way to put it this way, how can we truly see Jesus for who he truly wants to be seen? Does that make sense? So that's what we'll look at here today, and hopefully it all makes sense as we jump into it. So I'm going to begin, first of all, by a quote by a guy named A.W. Tozer, so you might be familiar with him, but he wrote this probably in the, I don't know, 70s or 80s, something like that, 1980s or whatever. And he wrote this He a phrase that some of you might be familiar with. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say in this larger context, the history of humankind shows that no people has ever risen above its religion. His whole point is that, for example, you can go into ancient pagan religions and viewpoints of God. So, for example, you can think of ancient uh, militarized civilizations that might have valued um, Mars um, as a god of war and power and might and death and violence. They were bloody, brutal cultures. Why? Because the religion has a view of their god as being violent. So people tend to become like that which they devote themselves to. And so how you see Jesus absolutely matters. So my hope for you is that you would have a proper vision of who Jesus truly is, not one that you've created, not according to your opinion, not how you wake up in the morning, feel, I feel Jesus should be X, Y, Z, but that you would see Jesus for who he truly is and, and lean into that, live into that. And then that will ultimately shape you into a type of person that becomes like Jesus, why this really matters. All right, so what I want to do right now is I'm going to jump in. We'll basically just read verse by verse each of these three sections. And so hopefully um, this will all make sense. And I'm just going to jump right in. I'll make some comments as I as I uh, make my way through this um, accordingly throughout the passage. So let's pick it up at verse 14. Um, again, this is probably in a much, much larger context, uh, going all the way back to chapter 5, uh, where Jesus actually uh, heals this paralyzed person. Person on the Sabbath, uh, this creates kind of a, an uproar. Uh, the religious leaders, especially, are are deeply frustrated and offended by Jesus because he does this miracle on a Sabbath, so, uh, on a Sabbath, which is a holy day. And in their your mind, they're thinking that no. Good things should be done, or no thing that's aside from what they've prescribed should be done on a Sabbath. And if something is done on a Sabbath, then you're violating, you know, whatever Sabbath codes that they've created. In other words, you're challenged, you are setting yourself up as an opposition or a challenge against their opinion and people that have power and authority and might and the ability to. Exercise violence; they don't like their their their, their, uh, their power challenged, and this is what Jesus was doing. So, in the larger context, this kind of like dovetails in the larger story. So, Jesus is constantly getting himself into this entanglements with the religious leaders. So, here we're just gonna I'm just gonna put a little bit of a caption over this that we see that Jesus is teaching in the temple. So, let's jump right in and we'll make our way through this. verse 14 about the middle of the feast. This would have been the feast of Tabernacles. We saw this last week. Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching, something Jesus did often. Jesus therefore uh or the the Jews I should say uh therefore marveled saying, How is it that this man has learning when he had never studied? So uh some of your translations might vary on that, but the religious leaders are looking at Jesus and are like, We went to Harvard, we went to Yale, but where did Jesus go to school? He went to city college. He's a nobody. He doesn't have skills. He doesn't have ability. But yet, here he is setting himself up as an authority who gave Jesus authority. We certainly didn't give jesus authority so they're they're offended by this again there's some people that are just always so easily offended i think it's our culture that we live in it's kind of the the air we breathe the water we swim in everybody is just offended by everything these guys are offended because jesus didn't go to the same training uh institutions that that jesus uh, that they did and so they're deeply offended and again i think just to give them the benefit of the doubt they're also tasked with being religious leaders over the people of Israel, meaning their job is to make sure that there is purity um, of doctrine and teaching. And So here's this guy, Jesus, coming in from the outside. Jesus' classic is the classic outsider, disruptor, coming in, bringing in a new teaching. But the, the, the unique thing with Jesus is he's not like the normal warp and woof disruptor, right? He's not just some angry politician or some angry, violent, you know, overthrower of power institutions he he is god himself step into this world but they don't know that they don't know that their eyes are blinded Uh, jesus doesn't meet their criteria and so therefore they're judging jesus so in other words if you want to put it this way they are not judging according to righteous judgment they are literally the classic example what john is trying to say Uh, don't in other words don't be like the pharisees (laughs) don't Don't judge the way they are judging because they're just simply looking at the appearances. They're looking at the fact that Jesus didn't go to their training institutions. So in verse 16, it says, the religious, or sorry, Jesus answered them, says, my teaching is not mine, but it's from him who sent me. Obviously, a reference to God the Father. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking my own authority. Uh, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And then the crowd answered him, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? So again, you can kind of get a little bit of the flavor of what's happening here. You have kind of this competition going on between Jesus, this authoritative voice of Jesus, Jesus representing the will of the Father, and the religious leaders who are obviously deeply offended and angry and frustrated by Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you guys, you guys are uptight and frustrated and you're wanting to kill me. And again, these guys are are, are trying to act pious and righteous, which is what you know, religious people do. They lean and trust upon their own um, righteousness in order to look superior to everybody else? Have you ever met those people? And let's just put it this way, it's not just simply in religious circles, it's also in secular circles. You know, people that are, let's say, again, if you're vegan, that's fine, I don't have a problem with that, but sometimes in certain circles, there have been occasions, occasions, every once in a while, someone who might drive an SUV that is, or or an EV, an electric vehicle, that would look at someone who drives an SUV with disdain. How dare you? You must hate every human living thing. Um, or how dare you eat meat? Like, you know, that type of superiority. And again, I, I don't have any problem with someone wants to eat vegan. That's fine. So don't, don't send me emails over that. But the point that I was just making this is, is that sometimes there are things that we can lean upon and and use that as a means of superiority over someone else. In the context of what we're reading here, these religious leaders see themselves as superior to Jesus. And this is the irony of the story. You guys, you guys get that? They actually see themselves as superior to the Son of God, the one who created them. This is, this is the craziness this, of, of as you read the story here. Um, but they look at Jesus, and they're like, you have a demon. That's just another way of saying, you're crazy. You're nuts. No one's trying to kill you. You're creating stuff up out of nowhere. You're, you're, you're paranoid. Like, who, who are you, Jesus? But here's the thing. Jesus knows everything. He knows the hidden thoughts. This is the reality of who Jesus guys. just check this out. Jesus knows everything about every circumstance he knows the things that he haven 't even been verbalized or articulated we we're we 're talking a lot about these days about living in a surveillance economy all right China by the way, is a surveillance economy like your 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 thoughts are are known for the most part and again you, whatever you post here or there gets kind of uh, brought into some sort of a an algorithm that then creates kind of a social score for you in certain countries like that. You know, there's all this question, like, will that happen in America? Well, of course it will. Like, we live in a surveillance world. We have the capacity of this type of stuff. In other words, what you think has the potential of being known. This has always been the case. Jesus knows all things. Here, these guys are trying to hide it. They're trying to, like, betray the fact that their hearts are filled with anger and rage and violence against Jesus. And when Jesus calls them out, they're like, you're crazy. You're crazy. It's one of the first forms of denials. you just deflect or you accuse or you call someone else just a, a, a horrible name. It's one of the reasons why I think social media is so stinking toxic. It's just like any time the heat gets ratcheted up, people just resort to name calling. It's like the classic example of when someone gets found out. So that's what happens with these guys. They're just turning to Jesus like calling names. Verse 21, Jesus answered them and said, Uh, I did one work, and you all marvel. It's probably a reference, like I mentioned, to the miracle that took place in John chapter 5. Jesus says, I do one work, and you guys all marvel. Moses gave you circumcision. Uh, Not that it was from Moses, but it came from the fathers of the patriarchs. Um, And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, um, are you angry at me because on the Sabbath I made a a man's body whole? Uh, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So, in other words, what Jesus is saying is that look, the, the law of Moses basically said two things uh, circumcise a son on the eighth day. And then it also said do no work on the Sabbath. In other words, rest. But what happens if the son is born, you know, eight days prior to the Sabbath, right? So, you've you're, you got a little bit of a quandary do, do, I, do I circumcise a child? I run the risk of it being a Sabbath and maybe violating. But there were these provisions that were made. And that's all cool. Like if if your kid is born and it works it out that your child needs to be circumcised on the eighth day, just go ahead and do it. You're not in violation of anything. So what Jesus is saying is kind of using rabbinic like um, argumentation aspects. This is how how Jews, uh, religious leaders would would discuss certain passages. Um, Jesus is like, hey, look, let's reason this out. I heal the guy's body on the Sabbath. And you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath. And you guys circumcise your children on the eighth day on the Sabbath, on occasion. And, oh, geez, sorry, i got to fix my Siri watch. Um, and and what, what Jesus is saying is that, like, look, I, I'm not violating the Sabbath, though you think I am violating the Sabbath. And God, God, God cares about life. And again, it's just another one of those moments to pause and reflect upon the God that we claim, that we worship, that is good. He actually cares about life we tend to think that really all god cares about is laws and rules um that's what religious people do so one of the reasons why i think people get so uptight when laws or rules are broken but what jesus ultimately cares about are is human human beings and so we see this kind of taking place and shape here and that's why i said in verse 24 jesus says don't judge by appearance but judge with righteous judgment now let's go on a second little segment here so good job you guys are made your way one third through so Pat yourself on the back. Good job. Are you ready? Keep, let's keep going. Um, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, and this kind of heading over this, I just kind of put it in my just arbitrary, I made this up. Jesus is now going to be examined by uh, these others. So, again, I just want you to think about this image in your mind. Jesus is now sort of under the uh, exam, examination table uh, by these religious leaders and these other people. So some of the people in Jerusalem, therefore, said, uh, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say to him, uh, can it be that all the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So in their mind they're kind of like, I, I don't get this. If Is he a threat? Is he good? Should we believe in him? Should we disregard him? Should we take him outside and stone him to death? Should we just throw ourselves at his feet and listen to what everything he has to say, we're a little bit confused because the, the religious leaders on the one hand are telling us he's dangerous, avoid him, and yet on the other hand here is openly like talking. Again, there, there, there's a reason why we don't just simply open the pulpit up to any random person just kind of come in here and like talk because some people might come in here and talk about God that is is a false God. Like I, as, a, as a pastor here, my, my, my job along with the elder team here is to make sure that that, the, the, the people that Jesus loves, the sheep, are, are protected and fed and carefully given God's word. And so this is what's happening here. that the, the people are asking, like, we don't get this. If Jesus really is a threat, then why is he being given carte blanche to just talk about whatever he wants to talk about? And then we begin to tap into a little bit that the religious leaders are actually filled with fear. They're, they're afraid of if they do turn Jesus in prematurely, the crowds might turn against them, and they'll lose popularity. Right. Like like their entire Twitter feed will just go implode and die and they will no longer be influential. So they're worried deeply about somehow uh, this whole thing turning on them and them losing power and authority. So they're really concerned about the power and authority that they have. And it says in verse 26, and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ or the king? But we know that this, where this man has come from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So what we see here is that they're kind of interjecting their false assumptions about when the Messiah comes, the king. In their minds, they had certain ideas and notions and expectations of what the king would do. Jesus, they're kind of wrestling in their minds. If he's the king, according to our tradition, we thought that the king, nobody would know where he would come from. But we know where Jesus came from. We know his mom and dad. Like we know his brothers. We know the city that he came from. There's no way it's you know it's a phrase I've said this before. Familiarity breeds contempt. When you become overly familiar with something, that that thought of like there's no way somebody great can come from that Podunkville. Like there's no way. Like I know that person. Like I know the cereal they eat, and I know how horrible they are at shooting baskets, and I know they're. They body surf, and they don't actually surf, they don't never stand up on a board. They, they rollerblade. I know they're a weird person. Like, I, I know this stuff about them. I know the type of clothing that they wear. They wear double, like, plaids. Like, they're weird people. There's no way this could be Jesus or somebody of greatness. And so in their mind, they're stumbling with the fact of all of these things that are happening. Verse 28 says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know, and you know where I come from. But I have not come from my own accord, or come on my own accord. But he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. But I know him, he's referring to his father. For I come from him, and he sent me. So this is a pretty bold claim. Jesus is like, look, you think I just came from this particular region of Galilee. But really, I've actually come from the Father, from God, from Yahweh, from Yahweh's right hand. And so therefore, I have authority that you can't even begin to conceive of. In other words, you get this picture in your mind that what Jesus is saying about Himself is He's portraying something that maybe majority of the people around Him have no clue of the depth of what He's describing. I don't know. It's kind of like the movie Matrix. It's like you got blue pill, you got the red pill. You want to go red pill? Your world's going to open up to something that you you are not ready to even fathom or understand until you until you put all. In you'll never fully grasp it. It's kind of what Jesus is saying. There's something about me that that none of you really fully comprehend and understand. But nonetheless, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's true. It's kind of, again, plays into the judge, righteous judgment, not according to appearances. Again, appearances point to he's just a dude. He's from Podunkville. We know his brothers. We know this about Jesus. There's no way he could be somebody of extreme significance and greatness in the eyes of God. So verse 30 says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. Uh, They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man, or will he do more signs than this man has done? So they're acknowledging the fact that Jesus has done quite a bit. So, there's something unique, obviously, they acknowledge about Jesus, but in their mind, they're still kind of wrestling through uh, who Jesus is and what his claims are, and so on and so forth. So, good job. Made it through two segments here. Let's read the last segment, and then I'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. Verse 32. So, the Pharisees' uh, little segment I'll put over this Jesus states his departure before God. So, he's going to give them a little bit of a glimpse into the future of what's going to happen. Verse 32 says The Pharisees then said or heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, sent officers to arrest him. And then said to him, I will be with you, Jesus, Jesus speaking, I will be with you a little while longer. And then I'm going to go to him who sent me. Uh, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. In verse 35, the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? In other words, in their minds, they're thinking, is Jesus talking about going to Antioch or Alexandria in Egypt? Or is he going off into some strange place in Europe um, where, where the Jews have been dispersed? That's what the reference to the diaspora is, dias- diaspora, where Jews had, had been driven out of the country and went all around the ancient world. And they became what's called Hellenized, became uh, they, they, they adopted Greek culture around them. In other words, they didn't, the Jews, say, for example, that lived in uh, ancient uh, Iran looked different than the Jews that lived in the heart of Jerusalem. But nonetheless, they worshiped the same God. So they're, they're wondering, is what's Jesus talking about? We have no clue. Uh, do you ever read Jesus and I'm kind of like had no idea what Jesus is just saying there? Well, you're, you're in the company of all people that have ever read Jesus or listened to Jesus. Like, there's going to be occasions where Jesus just simply does not make sense. Um, verse 36, uh, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me for where I am, you cannot come? So again, this just leaves that little final question. Now I'm done with the, the reading here, and I want to just kind of jump into some of the ways in which others and the story of Jesus had perceived him. I think this is helpful, just kind of help shape our understanding of the various mis- misperceptions that people had about Jesus. So for example, Jesus' family, we, we were introduced to them earlier on in the chapter, verse five, we're told that Jesus' brothers ultimately did not believe in him. They didn't believe who Jesus was. So imagine that. Like that's that's not a that's not a major like eye-opening reality. Like, like let's say, for example, your older sibling was like, Hey, I'm God. Like how many of you would probably be prone to believe that like oh i'm going to worship you then no because you you you, they were the ones that kind of gave you nuggies growing up and you know you you didn't like them and that you had that like like younger sibling like disdain towards older sibling and and i I guarantee you the same thing happened with jesus the only difference with jesus is he was always perfect he's always like yes mother yes father i'll do whatever you ask me to do and always keep my bedroom clean and always like do the chores around the house in other words jesus was like, literally perfect. Like, li- like, it's not just the younger kid being like, he's always perfect. Like, literally, Jesus was always perfect. Like, imagine growing up under that, right? Mom's always comparing you. Why don't you just be like Jesus? Like, your disdain is mounting day by day. Like, I really, really disdain this, this older kid brother we call Jesus. But it's not until Jesus rose again from the dead that every one of his brothers— actually believed in him and again you get this in the new testament again you don't have to take my word for it just read the book of jude read the book of james those those are actually believed to be jesus's literal half brothers and in each of those books not one reference is like this book is about jesus my older kid brother it's actually this is about jesus christ the lord their entire opinion shifted from older kid brother we disdain and don't believe to older kid brother that we bow down to in worship. This, this to me is like one of the most powerful testimonies. Why you can believe the New Testament documents as, as eyewitness proof. Like, like this does not happen. This type of narrative happened in our world today unless it's actually true. Okay, so next we see Jesus' own disciples. They were constantly in a state of uh, confusion as to who Jesus really was, his true identity. They were still kind of in their mind thinking Jesus was going to be like this warrior king that was going to go out and violently shed the blood of his enemies. And yet Jesus is actually like, "Hey, let's pray for our enemies." They're like, "No, we need to crush the enemies." Jesus is like, "No, let's let's forgive our enemies." They're like, "No, we shed blood of enemies." And Jesus is like, "Nope, that's not what we do. That's not my, that's not my agenda. That may be your agenda. It's not my agenda." Uh, Jesus' followers, again, Jesus had a lot of followers. And when I mean followers, is just people that, like, follow Jesus. It's kind of like uh, the closest uh, uh, relationship would be, you know, likes on your social media. Like, oh, my gosh, I got 6,000 people who like me. Like, that's cool. Good for you. But the point of the matter is, is that doesn't mean that they are for you. It doesn't mean they really even care about you. But Jesus had a lot of people that followed him. But even these people had all sorts of opinions about him. So, for example, verse 12, it says in chapter 7, some um, saw him as a good man. Others actually saw him as a deceiver going around um, pulling the wool over people's eyes. And then lastly, we see the Jewish leaders uh, in chapter uh, 7, verse 15. It says, uh, we already read this, that they saw Jesus untrained and skilled and ultimately unacceptable. Like we, we do not accept the testimony that Jesus has to say. We, in fact, reject what Jesus has to say because... He doesn't fit our criteria of what learned elite status should look like, and therefore we reject everything that comes out of his mouth. So much so to the point where they're like, let's let's figure out how we can actually silence him for good. Um, and then, so as I think about this, what, what are some examples in our modern world, like, say, for example, here in America, some of the common misconceptions? Any, any, anybody? And takers, I have a handful written down here, but I'll just start with, you know, audience participation. Um, what are some common misconceptions? perceptions that people have about who jesus is anybody just a man right just a man just did stuff what else some other common ones a prophet just a prophet you know he spoke some fascinating things about the future or whatever or other people's lives any other common misconceptions he's just fictional yeah he's just a myth kind of was part of a narrative of an ancient storyline that was Pretty fantastic and pretty amazing, but that's all that he is. He's just a, he's just the character in a story. Any other uh, popular misconceptions about Jesus? Sorry? He's just a good guy. He's a straight-up good guy. He's like, you know, the guy that shows up at the party, you're like, man, I really like that guy. He's really good. He's really good. These are a handful that I, I threw out as I was thinking about these. You know, I think we kind of already touched on this one. Like, a good teacher. He's a good teacher. You can listen to his sermon for a long time. He's really good, unlike the guy that's in the pulpit right now. Some might even look at Jesus as kind of like a political revolutionary, kind of like a like an ancient Jewish Che Guevara, like his his whole sole purpose is to go out, kind of upset, overturn, disrupt. He's like a just like a holy disruptor. And and he, did he disrupt things? Absolutely, straight up. He was always disrupting things. But was he a revolutionary? Was he out to kind of like do this? And again, I, I think it's a false. Uh, misconception that we can have about Jesus. Some can maybe think of Jesus as nothing more than like a cosmic therapist or like a life coach, you know, the life coach Jesus. You kind of follow what Jesus has to say. He's got a lot of good, interesting ideas and concepts and thoughts. We can cherry pick things that really resonate with us or that resonate with our particular political aspirations or ideas. Um, Another way some people think about Jesus is kind of like social justice warrior Jesus. He cares about the poor and the marginalized and the hurting and those that are sick and Creating health care for everybody because he really, truly just cares about all people. He wants to really care for the actual felt needs of all people and culture and society around him. Here's another one I think is a a very popular one but unpopular to talk about, American Patriot Jesus. He wraps himself in the American flag, and that's the Jesus that we worship. And all of these are false Jesuses that I think need to be exposed and identified. None of them fit the biblical first century image of who Jesus is. All of them are caricatures I think that need to be exposed. There's a preacher that I've always loved. His name's Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he, in a sermon that I was listening to, he said this. That He gives this like strong warning. He says, you need to be careful when examining Jesus. Because when you do, what you will find is you are actually the one being examined by Jesus. And he goes on to say, really, when we examine Jesus and we portray our opinions about Jesus, he goes on to describe, really, you are exposing yourself in your blindness. And your prejudice and your pride. I mean, anytime any of us we open our mouth and we pass on an opinion, why well, I think Jesus is when you fill in the blank, we're really just kind of showing and revealing, putting our cards on a table, showing who we truly are. I mean it's kinda of like someone that like can listen to some of the ancient, you know, masters of of music, I don't know, like Bach or whatever, Beethoven, and be like, that's horrible music. It's so it's just ugly. It's you know, you're just kind of letting the world know. You might not like that style; might not be your cup of tea. It's fine, but at the same time, you're you're, you're revealing the fact that maybe, maybe, maybe you don't understand like certain beauty that can be portrayed. So, the same I think can be said about Jesus. All right. And then, lastly, um, as we kind of move on from this, why is it essential? I think to judge with with righteous judgment. What are some reasons why? I think this is important. Just to consider some specific actual reasons why. It's important to do this. So number one, I'll just go through these real quickly. Number one, because truth matters. Truth matters. Truth matters. Especially in a world of fake news and multiple opinions. The fact is that opinions, in other words, how you think about something, appearances that you know we are oftentimes prone to judge someone based upon their appearances alone, and emotions, You know those, those things that we have, all of us have them, and they shift and shape and change and they ebb and flow, that opinions appearances and emotions they ultimately all have limited lifespan all of them they will not last forever so a perfect example of this is just you know look at photos from five years ago you're like why was i wearing that outfit that looks so stupid because it was stupid but you didn't know that then sorry that just offends you you didn't know that then because then you're just like it looks so cool i look so amazing and five years later you're like i look so horrible what was i thinking What you're doing is you're realizing that our opinions in a moment, in a circumstance, it will change over time. You're going to base your eternity on that? You're going to base your understanding, your future of this God, based upon a momentary experience or appearance or emotion or an opinion of Jesus? Truth matters, if I can put it this way. Truth matters. It's essential. Secondly, is formation happens. Formation happens. I like to think of it this way, that our moral compass ultimately is shaped by how you think about Jesus. That we are shaped by what we give ourselves to. If we give ourselves over to a caricature of Jesus, then we will will end up doing damage to ourselves and ultimately to others. I'll give you an example. I was reading a book recently by one of my favorite authors. Uh, Her name is Nancy Piercy, fantastic theologian. I think one of the greatest, most brilliant minds Theologically over the past 50 years, um, she, in her most recent book, um, said, she basically writes it's actually the, the toxic war of masculinity just came out this past week, and uh, she quotes a guy by the name of Brad Wilcox, and there's been this myth, and some of you may have heard of it, that, um, that divorce in the church is exactly as, statistic-wise, as divorce in the world, and she basically says that that statistic, if you've ever heard that, is actually false. It's wrong. It's not accurate. It's, it's one that has become widely popularized and widely uh, parroted or responded to or co- uh, communicated. But she actually says, based upon the most recent data, that that's actually false. And she quotes this guy by the name of Brad Wilcox. And he, here's what he says. He actually states this. Devout Christian men shatter negative stereotypes. So I, w- I want you to pay attention to the word that he uses here. It's really important. Devout Christian men shatter the negative stereotypes. They're more loving to their wives more emotionally engaged with their children than any other group in America. They are the least likely to divorce, and they have the lowest levels of domestic abuse and violence. Brad Wilcox, you can just look him up, Google him. He's a widely written author that's written in HuffPost, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, is widely written, widely published. He goes on to say, whereas committed church-going couples report the lowest rate of violence of any group, 2.8, Nominals is where he makes a distinction. Nominal Christians. Uh, the word nominal basically just means in name only. And he'll give a definition of this in just, just a moment. So he, he pits committed Christians with nominal Christians. Really important distinction. He goes on to say, um, Nominals report the highest rate of divorce in any group, 7.2. Even higher than secular couples. The most violent husbands in America, listen carefully to this. The most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church, listen, infrequently, if not at all. It seems that many nominal men hang around the fringes of Christian world. This is where he gets to the data that's really important. Nominal Christian men hang around the fringes of the Christian world just enough to hear language of headship or submission, but not enough to learn the biblical meaning of those terms. It's like skimming the news headlines without reading the actual stories. Fantastic. Fascinating. It's a question that you need to think about, especially dudes. Are you a nominal Christian? Where you've picked up certain terminology and language and vocabulary, but you're not fluent in the way of Christianity. You're not fluent in Jesus. You know certain aspects of Christianity just enough to make you extremely dangerous. Because you go home and you throw around the whole, you need to submit to me line that becomes a means of horrible abuse. You're just a Christian in name, not in action. And her whole point is that men that are actually Christian in a devout nature, where they realize they're submitted to the headship of Jesus. In other words, they have a right vision of Jesus. To put it another way, they've judged righteous judgment about who Jesus is. Or to put it another way, they see Jesus rightly. Are more likely to be the source of life in a family, to have a happy marriage, and to be a good father. Those that are just Christian in name only. Are catastrophes waiting to happen. The, I think this is so important because again formation happens. Based upon how you view Jesus. Lastly in this little segment here. I think salvation is compromised. In other words. Peace and assurance will always be elusive to you. Always. There is no Peace in a caricature of Jesus. It's a false entity. It doesn't exist. It's, a, it's something that you've created in your own mind. It's the Jesus that you want to be real, but doesn't really exist. Um, salvation is only attached to who Jesus claims he truly is. Okay, last name then, I promise. How can we judge right judgment? And I just want to give you four, maybe five, if I have time. Um, Number one, humble yourself. These are four ways, five ways that you can judge righteous judgment. Because I want you guys to walk out of here in a way of being able to look at that this this is available. Like you can actually judge right judgment. You can see Jesus rightly. But it requires, I think, these things. Number one, humble yourself. In other words, adopt the posture of a learner or like a child. A childlike posture that just says, I'm here to learn. And part of that involves reclaiming a sense of awe and wonder of who Jesus is. If all you see Jesus is nothing more than an ideology that's to be examined, you're on the fringes of the Christian world, but you've never entered in. You've never tasted and seen the beauty and the goodness and the love of Jesus. You've just been on the outskirts. The invitation for you is to step in and to be radically transformed, that involves a process of humbling oneself to receive who Jesus truly is. Secondly, study scriptures. Let scriptures be, and the eyewitness accounts that are in scriptures, be the thing that shape you. And ultimately obey what's there. So what you read about Jesus, obey it. it it's actually in some ways better. Again, we live in a culture that that loves to criticize and critique anything and everything. Especially that's ancient or old. Uh, that's That's, you know, older than like you know, five years old. It's like, oh man, it's 2,000 years old. We know that's got to be a form of an oppression of another ancient distant culture. And the tendency is to just judge it, to dismiss it. But scriptures have always been a means of helping people to understand who God is, but it involves a humble heart to receive them. Secondly, it involves studying and ultimately obeying these things. Thirdly, seek personal relationship with Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, if all you have is sort of this external superficial relationship with jesus the invitation for you is to ask jesus to reveal himself to you i mean it could be as simple as just jesus show me who you are i want to know you i want to see you i don't want to just have a superficial relationship with you i don't want to just know stuff about you i want to know you and then fourthly Engage with a community of believers. Engage with a community of believers. This is where the body of Christ is essential. Again, this goes against the isolationism of our culture. It's just like, I can follow Jesus on my own. I can do what I want. I can act how I want. I can like, listen to a podcast, but never be involved in a Christian community. Sure, you can do that. It's, it's, you have the ability to do that. But is it the best thing for you? Will it help you? Will it really, truly help anchor you in the historic Christian faith? that has given life to billions upon billions upon billions of people on planet Earth. And this is the invitation for us, is to hear the words of Jesus, to not judge by appearances only, but to judge righteous judgment, or like I said earlier, in another way, to see Jesus rightly, or to finish with the words of A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind shows that no people has ever risen above It's religion. What are you worshiping? What image of Jesus are you worshiping? Is it one that's been informed by Jesus himself, by those that have borne testimony of his goodness? Or is it just something that has been shaped by the culture at large around us? That is literally, there is no shortage of opinions of Jesus in that larger, broader context. But the question is, are they life-giving? Do they lead to eternal security and hope and healing and wholeness? Or just are they all various paths to another form of a dead end. I'm done. I'm going to invite you all to stand. And I want to pray over us right now because really I think at the end of the day, it's time for us to really do some inspection on our own souls and our own hearts and ask what, what vision are we clinging onto, Are we holding on to That's shaping us. And it may be an occasion for some of us just to, to repent, to confess, to, to lay those on the altar and to say, I've, I've devoted myself a false image of Jesus. I need to confess that. I need to walk away from that. And I need to turn to the true vision that Jesus gives of himself. So I'm going to pray over us, and then we will dismiss y'all. So Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've shown to us about yourself. We ask you right now, Father, that you would um, help our lives to be shaped and framed around who you are and how you've shown yourself to be. God, we pray that there would be faith and confidence, and trust, and loyalty that would arise in our hearts to you. We want to become like you. We want to live for you. We want our lives to have impact in a positive way in people's lives, not negative ways. So help us, Holy Spirit, to be that, to do that by the power of God. And I pray right now, if you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you have thought you've been a Christian your whole life, and maybe there's certain ideas that you've held to, that this morning the Holy Spirit has kind of shown you, no, that's not, that's not revelation of Scripture. That's something that you've held on to. That's, that's myth. And my invitation to you would be, even right now, in the silence of your own heart, to confess those things to Jesus and ask him to reshape your heart and your convictions around who he is. So, Father, as we leave now, empower us to be all that you call us to be and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus name we all said amen